Hello, everyone. How are you doing? And welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. I am your host, Dr. Will, and today we will be talking about EdTech consulting, what's going on, what isn't going on. And today, my guest is Dr. Jessica Lee. Uh, you're going to have a good time today. We've had a great conversation prior to this recording. So for those who will be listening in the future on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Simplecast, and Spotify, Dr. Jessica Lee, will you please introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Jessica Mian Lee. I am the Associate Director for the Center for Teaching Excellence at Loyola Marymount University, and I also do a considerable amount of consulting on the side, and I'm also a part-time faculty in the School of Education here as well. Awesome. So you are the Associate Director, as you mentioned, of LMU's Center for Teaching and Learning. What does your position entail, and what drew you to online learning? Uh, as the associate director, I help with our center that really focuses on student-centered uh, faculty development for our faculty who are teacher scholars. So they're teaching and they're also doing a lot of research. And our center really focuses on implementing high-impact practices for our tenured clinical and part-time faculty. So that includes, we you know help facilitate faculty learning communities, Faculty do presentations on their pedagogy and scholarship here. We have hands-on workshops for our faculty. Uh, we have research support, and I'm bringing in a strong element of online and hybrid teaching and learning and also integrating technology in a meaningful way here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, in terms of what drew me to the online learning environment, I'd say, um, as we talked about previously, I've always had a passion for educational technology, its integration, and ultimately its role in shaping how students access resources and learning experiences in an equitable way. And online education seemed to be the answer to that call. So we're definitely not there yet in completing that mission um, with simply having online programs and courses, but it's, it's an exciting start. Mm. So as we look at companies like Udemy and Udacity, or creative live, how does online learning scale and make those skills accessible? Because uh, we hear a lot about 21st century skills uh, for a changing economy. Yeah, I think you know these these companies are making some great contributions. Um, they're successful in decreasing, I think, the gap in access to sources of education. And they're knocking down barriers in terms of geography and time. And in the case for these companies in particular, definitely cost. Um, but as we know, that's not always the case with companies like this. Um, so on the production end, they're able to scale these programs and certificate programs, classes, and the limitlessness of it is definitely exciting. I mean, you can meet the demand of what students are looking for by simply looking at the number of you know, instructional designers you have, you would get subject matter experts, and you can really churn out a new course, I think within months successfully. Um, so it's definitely creating flexible flexibility for students and it's, it's meeting the pace of industry, I think. And so that's crucial for keeping education and in particularly higher ed relevant. And it's a practical investment through the perspective of students 
Um, for instance, stackable certificates, that model is increasingly um, successful for at-risk students. And there's a persistence rate now of over 80%, so that's really huge. But um, on the flip side, I think research shows that those who access these kinds of materials, online and digital resources, are are those who have already grown up with it or have already had access to this technology. So the tech privilege that we're seeing in K-12, it definitely trickles into higher ed and, and these resources are only being kind of maximized by students who have always, always had it there, so. So, and, th and, this, and I found this to be interesting when I first read the article about this, but much to the chagrin the more than a few professors at Purdue, you know, they bought Catholic University and then created their offshoot Purdue Global because they wanted to expand their online degree offerings. And there were many people like, uh -uh, we're Purdue, we don't do that. Um, but how do you see teaching and learning change when the classroom can be accessed via any internet connected device and where do you see the landscape of higher education shifting because of the popularity of online degree programs? I think that teaching and learning in an online space can be just as effective and engaging, if not more than. And that's not my opinion alone. There's a lot of research out there that supports that. But I think that big asterisk here is if that only works if um, faculty have the training, if students are prepared and the course design follows frameworks and pedagogical standards that adhere to student-centered learning and has those high-impact practices that position the instruction first and the technology second. I think a lot of the reasons why we're seeing pushback from faculty and even from students is the perception that online learning, these courses are less than the face-to-face, -face. Um, but I think that was from the historical kind of uh, downfall of what we saw with the MOOCs, the Massively Open Online Courses. And so being really intentional about how we're designing these courses and really putting student learning at the center of this, this whole endeavor, I think is gonna be key. And in terms of the landscape, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, um, I think we're reaching a saturation point in the online degree market. It's growing, uh, we're seeing a lot of different kind of business elements come into play. The online program management companies, OPM, like um, to you, and so uh, we're seeing a lot of instructional design companies uh, such as Lucian. But students themselves are finding more options when they just do a quick Google search. So we're finding that universities are competing more and more with each other now on a national scale when it used to be more regional. And I'd even um, garnered to say that it it's at an international level too now. So we're seeing this big shift, and it's. Um, it's given us all in higher ed this knowledge through research that hybrid education is actually where we're seeing the most success. And so we're seeing the most engagement and satisfaction in teaching and learning in this realm. So I'm really curious to see how that's going to play out on a grander scale um, in higher ed kind of across the board. Yeah, I'm interested in that as well, because I know there are graduate programs out there where for most of your course, you have most of your coursework that will be done online, but then they have these sort of institutes where you will come to the university uh, for a couple of weeks or so or whatever, so you can get that face-to-face -face time. Uh, I know someone who did that working on the MFA, and I was like, oh, okay. When I first heard of it, like, oh, you're gonna, 
Um, so I want to jump into the work of, okay, so let's think about how we are traditionally taught. Mm-hmm. Most educators, trainers, you know, we're taught how to do this face, traditional face-to-face. I'm in the front of the room. I'm talking. I'm speaking. Here's a worksheet. You're taking down notes. But as a scholar practitioner and educational consultant, what are your thoughts on the future of digital learning and what are folks getting right and what are some of the missteps you've seen? I think going back to your last question, I see hybrid education as the new normal. So many faculty are doing it today, I think, without even realizing it or calling it that. You know, they go to conferences and in the meantime, they host online sessions for their students or they require students to meet online for group work. I mean, this is all hybrid education and having some kind of touch point face to face and in person. I think is crucial to many. And we're not there yet where everyone has necessarily bought into a wholly online experience. Like I spoke about the issue of perception. So um, not from the student perspective and definitely not from the faculty administration um, as a whole in higher ed. I think um, we're definitely gonna have to kind of step away from pushing online, you know, 100% online programs and courses and definitely look at what hybrid has to offer. Um, and folks are, are getting it right, I think. They're understanding the importance of training um, before executing a course in higher ed. We're seeing a lot of professional development workshops. There are usually centers like mine at every university um, where they have some sort of training or certification program in place. We do, we just started one um, last year. And preparation is definitely key. In faculty, I'm hearing that from a lot of them that they understand, hey, the load is heavier up front when we're doing an online course than it is a face-to-face course, but they definitely see the benefits in having this process of iteration where they go back and you know tweak their curriculum in a way that they may not necessarily do in a face-to-face where they're just kind of instructing right from the get-go when they walk into the classroom. Um, and active learning strategies, we're seeing that a lot in, you know, you know, the Chronicle of Higher Ed, we're seeing it all over K-12. And those strategies that ground, you know, teaching, activity, and assessment design with student engagement um, is the glue that's going to hold everything together in a great online course or program. So I am seeing a lot of that, and that's really exciting, and I think it points to, um, what's going to develop in our future. Uh, But there are definitely missteps as well. Um, I think we are also seeing that teachers, faculty are not necessarily paying attention to student preferences like we talked about before. There is, I think, a knowledge and generational gap. Um, Students, the research shows that students prefer learning um, using technology. And, you know, they, they are actually, the research shows that they prefer learning with their phones. And even for me, you know, being an, I think an expert and a lover of ed tech, that even makes me uncomfortable. Like, oh my God, I need my laptop, but you know, students prefer their phones and you know, we have to pay attention to that. They are Gen Z or Gen Alpha as they're calling them. Um, and they're walking into our universities only knowing using educational technology. And so I think we also underestimate how much knowledge and experience and need students walk into our colleges um, that they come with. And their K-12 experience is phenomenal, I think, with ed tech at a lot of districts that are getting it right. And um, I think an issue that we're not really addressing here in K-12 or higher ed is the fact that students have this experience in K-12 with educational technology, and we assume that when they walk into a college or university that they're going to have that same experience. But what we're seeing in colleges are the stage on the stage 
we have the faculty member who's lecturing for two, three hours in front of the class using a PowerPoint presentation. They're handing out Scantrons. So students are going from being a one-to-one -one device school, using Chromebooks, using Schoology, you know, using their LMS, and then they're coming to colleges and kind of going backwards in time where, where they're having experiences that we had. You know, they didn't even experience that in K-12. And so I'm seeing that as a total misstep. Um, and we need to, we just need to catch up. And this is not a faculty issue. This is um, an institutional issue, I think. And institutions are slow to change, but we need to be prepared. We need to be flexible and agile and get ready for, you know, the next transformation that does need to happen. Okay, so I want to- get off my soapbox. <laughs> I hear you, I hear you. I hear, look. <laughs> I feel the same way. You know, we talked about this before we started recording. I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted at, at what I'm seeing and what I have heard. And I, I, I just don't know what to do about that. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about your work as a consultant. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on my podcast, you know, I talk to educators. I talk to, you know, entrepreneurs, those educators who are entrepreneurs and you know, they talk about their knowledge base and, you know, I was a second grade teacher for this many years. So I did that. What, what are some of the services and workshops do you offer and how did you go about your process of breaking down your knowledge base, your work experience, your edtech skills to determine which direction to take your consultant? Yeah, so back in 2007, I actually started my own business. Um, it was ABC Academy. It was a learning center, a physical space um, out in Santa Clarita in California in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And uh, basically what I was trying to do is meet the community's needs in terms of providing supplemental education for students outside of public school or their, their kind of like nine to three school time. And so we offered a variety of services that included test prep, study skills. We had you know intervention programs, we had enrichment programs. I held workshops on writing, language for our English language learners, even adult learning workshops for um, families that needed uh, programs for English as a second language, financial aid workshops, college prep and application process workshops. So I, I built this business around really having a holistic look at the educational experience of a student and, and the families that really needed the support and resources to really make sure they're maximizing what they can offer their children. You know, edu the education system is still kind of broken up into elementary school, junior high, and high school. Sometimes these schools don't even have the same district. They're in different districts. So there was a disconnect in the information they were getting or the preparation that they needed to really um, position their children to be in an advantageous, you know, place. And so uh, the services we were providing were, were giving parents and families that. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of close the knowledge gap that I saw was happening between these different um, grade bands. And so uh, we wanted to deliver that the best way we could and modeling that was important. And so we did use the latest technology and tools that were coming out to really give students and families that meta experience. These are not students who, you know, are five miles, live within like five miles of our center. Some of them are traveling athletes. Some of them were actors. We're from Los Angeles. So, you know, they were not here, you know, so we needed to be able to still provide a consistent level of support for our students and families, you know, even when they were traveling. So 
that's where technology really came into place. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be something. We really need to stay on the ball in terms of what's, what's the latest and greatest so that we can really make sure we're providing access points, multiple access points for students and, and their families. Mm, I like that. I like that. I keep hearing about the need to niche down and I'm still working on that myself because I have so I have these interests here. I have interests there, but I know I've been written, you know, people have paid me to do this. Mm-hmm. When you think about the need to niche down and it's more than being cheaper than someone else It's it's more than sort of being a, being sort of, Oh, I'm another this, but this, they talk about being different. Mm-hmm. How have you carved out the space that is Dr. Jessica Lee? When I had my uh, physical space, uh, my business, it was really daunting, you know, in terms of the business aspect of it, you know, the financial ends and the worries and the concerns that you have there. It was important to do my research, I think, look at what uh, competing businesses were doing, um, what other consultants were doing in my field, and not being distracted, I think, by the kind of menu of services and, you know, the flashy kind of hot button keywords that they were using for their marketing and really dialing it down to understanding why I was doing what I was doing and having an articulated mission. And um, as cliche as it sounds is keeping it simple and simply being authentic. I think in the space of education, we're not selling a product. We are selling a promise to, to students and to families. And it could not possibly be fulfilled without me putting in more than what I marketed, to be honest. And we're working with clients who are vulnerable, who are um, unsure, misinformed, marginalized, and you really have to have the heart um, to work with you know these folks in a really sensitive and um, all-encompassing way. So I had to, and, and really badly wanted to make sure that I did everything I could to support students and their families across the services and resources I had. So I really just kind of buckled down. Um, I knew what everyone was doing in my peripheral, and I wanted to keep my marketing my mission simple and authentic and I think that really spoke to the clients that I had we did um, next to no marketing um, no kind of email blasts or you know all the advertising that you know kind of drains your funds up front and we grew by word of mouth Um, we grew from having five clients to over a hundred Um, just by word of mouth alone. And I think in education and parenting spaces, that is the most powerful. And so if you're creating authentic experiences for your clients where they know they can trust you, they know that you truly do care, um, that's really invaluable in this space of consulting and education. I think it's different in other industries, but here we're working with really the hearts and souls of families. So we need to really be mindful of that. Mm. It's, there's a lot of ed consultants out there, but I don't know how many of us sort of sit down and talk to each other about money, you know, what someone should be charging, yeah. um, how is someone learning the, the business side of what they're, what they're doing, or how they're finding clients, or, or who is your ideal client, and saying that, what have you learned from other educational consultants that you have actually implemented in the work that you do? 
that's a great question. And I think there's a lot to learn from good experiences that you have with interfacing with ed tech consultants and then the negative experiences that you have as well. And the one thing I, the one theme that kind of spoke through uh, was partnerships. I saw the lack of partnering that a lot of consultants and companies were doing. And then I saw the great work that happened when you do partner. And so I, in the beginning, was working on a one-to-one -one model, consultant to family. Um, and if you think about scalability, that, that doesn't really work, right? And so um, although it was sustainable to a degree, it was narrow. And it was, you know, it, I will admit a bit territorial of me as a business owner and as a consultant. You know, you don't want to lose clients or necessarily share clients. But seeing how other consultants partnered with teachers um, who were kind of seen as competitors at the time and schools, community-based organizations like nonprofit organizations, even organizations like the library, the city hall, and even higher education institutions really broadened my perspective and allowed me to expand my resources I was able to provide and also my knowledge base, which I was able to disseminate for greater value to everyone I was working with. So the ripple effect grew and it was greater and it fulfilled my own personal mission to reach a wider net of families and students with what I alone couldn't do to provide support. So partnering I think is key. That has been a theme that has not stopped even in the work I do now in higher ed. It's, it's I think the key to our, our future is working together. Hmm. So what have you learned? Okay, uh, see, this is live people. Uh, <laughs> You're working in higher ed and I'm working in K through 12. What is the ed tech consulting landscape like in higher ed and how does it differ from K through 12? Yeah, consulting in ed tech and higher ed, I think is a dance. I, that's what I uh, always refer to in terms of metaphor. So K-12 ed tech, which um, surprising to many is much further along than we are in higher education as a whole. We talked about this and we're seeing organizations like ISTE, the International Society for Tech and Education, growing in standards adoption across the country. We're seeing districts um, adopt professional development models that are strategic and organized, that have high touch points. I mean, it's a systematic vision and approach to ensuring that ed tech is thoughtfully implemented with instruction first and not just having technology for the sake of having it. Here's an iPad cart. Go do the thing. Teachers are left there sitting like, what do you want me to do with all this? You know, so higher ed is, is behind even that, I would say, simply put. Um, K-12 educators and administrators are working really hard to reimagine education with technology, but there seems to be greater resistance, I think, in higher ed with issues around academic freedom for faculty, which I do believe in. Um, but when that becomes the topic of discussion, and we're only talking about academic freedom, the point of creating student-centered learning disappears. And I think that is the problem. So we hope that with all the work that we're putting into educating students with and for greater use of ed tech to prepare them for college and career readiness, that they kind of sail into these colleges and universities with their devices ready to take it to the next level. Um, but I'm seeing what I saw when I came into higher ed was a complete culture shock um, where students are writing essays by hand, bubbling in scantrons. And these are our Gen Z students or Gen Alpha students who may not have even had to do that in K-12. So it's definitely a paradigm shift that's slow to take in higher education, but we are seeing the topic of educational technology, technology integration, you know, online and hybrid ed really starting to take a presence here. So I am hopeful and want to be a part of 
kind of forging this pipeline of continuum with tech and education from K-12 to higher ed in the same fashion, which is gonna be very strategic. It's gotta be meaningful, instruction research driven uh, with students at the center. But again, that's, that's a very delicate dance we all have to do, um, but it is possible. All right. Yeah. Now, this is the last question, and, and this is, this is something that, you know, when I think of how technology, particularly the internet uh, and mobile devices, just has really changed our world in such a way, in such a short time period. And education, for some reason, I have no idea what they're thinking. Like, you, you have this cat, Steve Lacey, interviewed by Wired. They did a story on him. He used an iPhone to produce music for Kendrick Lamar. An iPhone. We have this type of creation and production and ownership going on outside of the field of education. But it seems as though we have schools that are just waiting, right? They're just waiting for the knowledge economy to just end or something as though, as though it's gonna, it's gonna move on to another age and then like go back to the worksheet industrial age they're so used to. Mm -hmm. What do you say, literally, to these schools, whether it's higher ed, whether it's K through 12, that they're really not ready and they have no real plan for transformation? Again, I think it's a knowledge gap. Um, and I think there's a little bit of the dilemma of denial mixed in as well. You know, the internet, uh, the knowledge economy as we know it, it may very well go away, but it, what's gonna replace it is gonna be something far more advanced and beyond our scope of even understanding today. So we're not, we're simply not going backwards. You know, time is pulling us only forward and only advancing design and technology in a way that will either force us to adapt eventually, um, or we're no longer gonna be players in the game, you know? And that's a really scary reality for many in higher education that are resistant to change or simply intimidated or reluctant to innovate their own practice. And um, I like your um, statement about how schools are really kind of putting money into technology, but not really having a plan for it. And I would like to introduce this issue that I'll be taking on as my latest project, my latest passion project, with taking what K-12 is doing in its nascent stage of integrating technology. Um, I'm really liking the model that I'm seeing from Los Angeles Unified School District, the second largest school district in the nation. They are using the ISTE standards and they have their own professional development model that they're taking into their, you know, six million, taking to their six million students. And I really want to take what's already being done out there and apply it to higher education. I mean, we don't need to sit here and recreate the wheel and think of these new ideas. It's being done out there, but it's being done in K-12. And we can adapt it to what the higher education ecosystem looks like. But 
um, we we're not going backwards that's for sure and so I think designing some sort of educational technology framework for higher education to use as a North Star to point us all in a direction in assessing and ensuring effective implementation of technology um, that is centered on ensuring multiple points of access for all of our students and addressing equity and providing all students and faculty and administrators the opportunity to learn across all subjects using technology is going to really enhance the teaching and learning experience. And so with all the positives that this is going to bring, I think it's going to really force people to look at what their own vision and mission is in being an educator and how technology is not the enemy, it's just here to help. All right, thank you, Dr. Jessica, for coming on the show. Thank you. You are welcome. Now, people, you know how I do this, right? This episode is gonna be available on Apple Podcasts, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe, leave your comments, rate, share on your social media platforms, on your website, let other people know what's going down here because your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show and I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Jessica Lee, for coming on and dropping gems. People, I wanna thank you for listening to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, invest in you, EDU, peace. <laughs>